The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Do you need directions or something? No, we need two rooms. Oh, 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 wonderful. are a very clean establishment. Nothing lives here, no bugs, no germs, and everything is hygiene wrapped. You know, of course, we can't allow any sick people in this motel. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 19th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I received the following email from one of our listeners, who shall remain anonymous, but whom I know personally as someone who works in the emergency department of one of Ontario's hospitals. Quote, I'm not an expert on this COVID issue and am concerned about a health care surge, but I'm also concerned about the lust for public control that seems to be manifesting in precautionary circumstances. I don't know. The infectious disease doctor at my work basically said it was okay to fly down south. A day later, there's escalating travel advisories. He seemed hesitant to endorse the level of fear. This is very upsetting. I guess I'll be able to report from the front line in the emergency department where I work. I'll keep you posted, end quote. And I asked him to do exactly that. His comments reached me just as I finished reviewing at least 15 consecutive hours of COVID-19-related documentaries and videos online. I've made an attempt to filter the most useful and informative material I reviewed to the surface for today's broadcast of Just Right in order to address his concerns, and perhaps yours as well which is exactly what I intend to do right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and like. And of course, you can always visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, And of course, while you're there, consider offering your financial support to our efforts by clicking on the relevant PayPal link. And again, by so doing, everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by Dave Plum. So be sure to include your snail mail address with any donation. Well, call it a panic-demic. Even though no one's running wild in the streets... Many consider our shutdown current state of affairs concerning COVID-19 to be an overreaction, a threat to our fundamental liberties, or perhaps even some kind of conspiracy created to cover up another more real threat. I have to admit that at the outset I shared some of these concerns, although after having delved into the situation more aggressively, those concerns have been put on the back burner for a while, even though not entirely dismissed. 
with U.S. President Donald Trump declaring a state of emergency in the United States this past Friday the 13th. <laughs> the entire world reacted in exactly the manner that was predicted by Salim Mansour on our show back on February 19th. If you recall, we had just finished discussing some good news stories on that day, namely Britain's follow-through on Brexit, Boris Johnson's landslide majority government, Donald Trump's magnificent State of the Union address, and the failed impeachment attempts against him, and, of course, the incredible robust American economy. It certainly appeared that things were looking up and moving in the right direction, and that was just one month ago. But as we approached the final quarter of that broadcast, I asked Salim if there might be any unpredictable negative events on the political horizon that could affect the current positive course we were discussing. And out of the blue, and totally unexpected to me, I have to admit, Salim raised the issue of the coronavirus as being the black swan that could change the overall picture we had been discussing. Sure enough, just as he had previously on our show predicted that Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States the minute Trump first rose to challenge Democrat Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, Salim's prediction that the coronavirus could become a global event like one rarely experienced in modern times also came to pass. On our March 4th broadcast, Gone Coronaviral, Salim expanded on the possible consequences of this development and in particular cited how communist China has been a leading cause of major past pandemics. As he explained at the time, China has been identified as the world's premier incubator of new infectious flu strains, including the 1918-19 Spanish flu, the 1957 Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu of 68, the Russian flu of 1997, the SARS outbreak of 2003, and most recently, the global spread of coronavirus originating in Wuhan. To Salim, this was not surprising, having himself visited China from its coastal cities to its deepest interior. Now, it's only two weeks after that particular broadcast, so where do we stand now? After having completely immersed myself in various documentaries, news updates, and commentaries concerning COVID-19 and past influenza pandemics, my perspective on the big picture has sharpened greatly. In balancing the still outstanding unknowns about COVID's global spread against what we do definitively know, I've arrived at some conclusions that may not be entirely in sync with the majority of what you're hearing, either in the mainstream media or even on social media. But first, allow me to establish a context. A context about the zeitgeist within which we currently live today. Think about it. We live in an era when the perfectly normal is considered to be something to panic about. Apparently, many of us are unable to distinguish between a real danger and an unreal danger. Climate change. Perfectly normal. Yet our politicians have declared it to be an emergency. We talked about this last week on the show. And when put in context, even the worst case scenario predicted by climate change alarmists has been expressed as something like a 1.5 or 2 degree centigrade increase in the entire planet's average temperature over a century. Now, on any given single day, we experience changes in temperature that dwarf this concern. It could be minus 5 in the morning and plus 20 in the afternoon, yet we humans survive the experience. We do so by adapting to the changing conditions. 
I recall at the turn of the millennium when the Y2K scare was pending. There was an unnecessary fear that our mechanical devices would suddenly cease to function or act in a destructive manner when the computers that control them switched from 1999 to 2000. Now, this was unwarranted. However, with regard to the banks and financial institutions facing the issue of computers miscalculating interest rates and other financial calculations, the problem was very real and was mitigated before the turn of the millennium. And then there are viruses. And I'm not talking about computer viruses, although they can wreak havoc as well. In the big picture of life, viruses are perfectly normal. And we've learned to live with all kinds of them. Cold viruses, flu viruses, sexually transmitted viruses, and the list goes on. We've learned to accept them as part of the risk we face in living life. I mean, risks are like getting in your car and heading out on a highway. Do you actually consider the number of people killed or injured severely in car accidents on a daily basis? The statistics can be alarming. Yet even against those stats, we do not fear getting into our vehicles and taking that risk. And then there's the coronavirus. Declared by the World Health Organization to be a pandemic, so let's begin with a clear definition of what a pandemic actually is. When we talk about a pandemic, we're talking about a new virus spreading across the globe and across countries affecting a high proportion of the population. It's important to remember, and this is important, pandemic is not related to the severity of an illness or to the number of fatalities associated with it. Among the many pandemics that have swept the globe, undoubtedly the worst one ever experienced was the so-called Spanish flu of 1918. And by the way, the word flu itself is derived from, of course, shortening the word influenza. After having reviewed many hours of material on viruses and flu pandemics, I thought the best way to form an objective perspective on this topic and on whether our political leaders are taking the proper action today is to begin with a history lesson. And it's an eye-opener. Coming up next on This Side of the Bumper and produced by Cambridge University, about six minutes taken from a documentary on the Spanish flu called A Warning from History, while on the return side of the bumper, another six minutes about the Spanish flu produced by Chromosome 8. Now bear in mind that both of these documentaries were produced in 2018, long before COVID-19 entered the scene. Perhaps until recently, Spanish flu has been what some people call a forgotten pandemic. But it was a huge global calamity. Uh, in terms of the number of deaths, we're saying 50 to 100 million, far greater than the casualties of the First World War. Roughly around May, April, May 1918, when you know the carnage of the First World War is, is graphic and horrendous. But at the same time, this, this unknown enemy is starting to sweep through the US, Europe, the trenches. And it is recorded by the Spanish press uh, and it becomes dubbed as the Spanish flu because they, they are neutral. Well, at the time in the 1920s, 
they estimated that maybe 20 million had died. Um, by the late 20th century, that figure had been up to 25 million. In the 21st century, with scientists and historians now getting together to work much more closely, that figure has now been up to 50 to 100 million people killed. We don't know exactly why some flu strains are much more severe than others and why some of them would, would be more likely to kill people or cause very severe disease. What is particular about avian and pandemic viruses is that they replicate deep inside our lungs. When our cells detect this and trigger a very strong innate immune response, this leads to an influx of white blood cells and fluids into our lungs and it restricts the amount of air space that we have to breathe. The symptoms um, are very graphic and very, very striking. So, you know, it's said that some people drowned in their own phlegm. So if it was hitting or affecting the lungs, uh, people were spurting blood from their ears and their noses. Descriptions of people turning blue um, or purple. So, you know, it was really, really severe and people just dropping down in the streets. Those that succumbed to the flu were in the age group 20 to 40 years, which is very unusual for an influenza epidemic or pandemic. And scientists and historians are now still looking to see why. There's really two ways that people died in 1918. They either died from the initial flu infection or they died from an enormously strong immune response to that virus where their lungs just filled up with fluids from trying to attack the virus that got into their lungs. Almost certainly it was a bird flu originally, but then we also know that that flu or something very similar to it was in pigs at the same time. Maybe it's somebody who works very closely with birds or who works very closely with pigs or has some other exposure like that. One of the big, really open questions in flu research and flu public health is, how does the virus adapt from one species to another? How does, for example, a virus in pigs or in birds get into humans and then start transmitting? Then the key question is, how does the virus then adapt within that person to stop being a pig virus or a bird virus and become a human virus, in other words, to be able to transmit from human to human. And it's probably some very quick evolutionary process that is going on within that human and in many cases won't be successful, but in a few cases will and that's when the virus can start spreading between humans and become a flu pandemic and then stay in humans as regular seasonal flu. Just as people were celebrating Armistice Day, there was hope that it was dying down, but then it resurged and a far more deadly and virulent strain um, emerged. So this, this second wave really spread like wildfire, uh, affecting a third or a quarter of the population of the world. Um, and, and it was short-lived, so it petered out not long afterwards, maybe 1920, 1921, but it was, it was in the sense, short-lived. We really don't know why we haven't seen a pandemic as deadly as, 19, as the 1918 pandemic. Scientists and public health officials are extremely concerned. The National Risk Register, which is the way that our government plans what are all the risks to civil society in the UK, there's only two events that are up there in terms of the most catastrophic, and that's a terrorist event or a influenza pandemic.
there is a real threat that there can be such pandemics. For example, the H5 and the H7 flu viruses that have infected now close to 2,000 people and killed about half of them. There has been with the H7 viruses some transmission from human to human. Not very efficient and it hasn't really taken off. Um, if either of those viruses did adapt to really transmit well between humans, there's a real concern that it could be as bad as the 1918 virus. And this is why there is so much research done for the public good to try to understand what's happening. And so much work done by people in public health and preparing in hospitals in case something like that happens. Well, experts like to say it's not if, but when. Epidemics have infected societies throughout history. Usually epidemics come and go, but some truly stand out for their viciousness. In recent history, there has been no pandemic more devastating than the flu of 1918, sometimes called the Spanish flu or swine flu. It killed about 675,000 in the United States alone. The outbreak came in the midst of World War I, and the flu would actually kill more troops than combat. The flu of 1918 was so deadly it killed more Americans than World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Yet Spanish flu was horrifying for even more reasons. It was very contagious and it killed extremely quickly, sometimes in as few as 12 hours. It killed people in the prime of their lives, with the most victims being young, healthy people aged 20 to 40. Additionally, it killed some of its victims in bizarre, brutal ways, completely unlike a typical flu virus. No one can be absolutely sure where the pandemic originated, but there are several theories. In northern France, there was an outbreak of a flu-like disease at a British military base in 1917. The base was located in a swampy area with lots of waterfowl and pigs. New flu epidemics often arise when people have close contact with sick birds or pigs. There was a separate outbreak of respiratory disease among soldiers from Southeast Asia who fought in World War I from 1916 to 1918. Most flus start in Southeast Asia, and some historians argue the soldier may have brought a new virus to Europe. But historian John Barry makes the case in his fascinating book, The Great Influenza, that the flu may have originated on a farm in rural Kansas by jumping from infected pigs to humans. Indeed, the first officially recognized cases of the Spanish flu emerged at a military base in Kansas. The U.S. had just entered World War I, and training and industry had ramped up at a rapid pace as the war machine fired up. But 1918 was the perfect breeding ground for a worldwide pandemic. In early 1918, every military base was teeming with young men training for war. The military hurried to build new barracks, hospitals, training areas, and facilities to support the influx of hundreds of thousands of men. Some of these men were volunteers, and some had been drafted. The strange new disease was just dying down in Haskell County when a few young men left there, headed to Camp Funston, Kansas, for training. Camp Funston, located at modern-day Fort Riley, was already over capacity, with 56,000 young men training for war. There hadn't been time to build enough barracks for all of them. It was the coldest winter on record east of the Rockies, yet many men were sleeping in tents without any heat and only thin blankets. 
In an effort to keep them all warm, the commander ordered all the men to move into barracks, violating the health and safety rules that dictated how much space each soldier should have. Inside the barracks, men huddled around stoves trying to keep warm. The men from Haskell County must have crowded in close too, even as they began to cough and sneeze. That's all it took. In the overcrowded barracks, the flu spread rapidly. It only took six days for the outbreak to begin. The men from Haskell County arrived on February 28th. Less than one week later, men began flooding into sick call. Within just a few weeks, the flu swept across the base, sickening thousands and killing between 38 and 50. It was a high death rate for the flu, but it was nothing compared to what was coming next. The virus was about to mutate and become much, much worse. Flu viruses are constantly mutating, and sometimes there will be a really big shift, or a virus that usually affects only animals mutates so it can infect people too. When that happens, it can be very deadly. The flu comes in waves, that's why we have a flu season. Although it may seem like a bad flu is done, the flu can hide for a while, or go infect people in a different part of the world, and then return even worse. In the case of the 1918 flu, three waves of flu devastated the world. The first wave wasn't too bad but the second and third waves were extremely dangerous. Nearly all the ships carrying American troops to war arrived at the port in Brest, France. In April of 1918, just as the flu outbreak was dying down at Camp Funston, an epidemic began in Brest and slowly began spreading throughout northern France. Despite the illness spreading in the city, more and more troops poured in. Healthy men would land, become infected, and then ship out to new duty stations and to the front line carrying the disease through every small town and hamlet through which the armies traveled. The flu tore across France and followed the front lines into Belgium and the Netherlands. It jumped across the lines of war and began infecting the German army, actually affecting the outcomes of battle since so many troops were too sick to fight. It jumped from the German army to the German people. By May it had reached Italy, where it crossed the Mediterranean and surged into North Africa. It also arrived in England by May riding back on boats with troops heading home. Infection and death rates began to skyrocket in Spain and Portugal. The flu gained its name, the Spanish flu, from the early infection and high mortality rate in Spain, where reported 8 million died in May. Spain was neutral in World War I, and as a result, it was one of the only countries that was reporting the news without strict government censorship. Most countries didn't want to reveal to their enemies that they were battling an epidemic and didn't want to affect their people's morale, so the governments pressured the media to hide and downplay the severity of the virus. However, in neutral Spain, the press was free to report the news accurately. Newspaper headlines in Spain screamed of an epidemic that was killing millions, while other countries only whispered of the flu. The world believed the flu was worse than Spain, when in actuality, Spain was the only one talking about it at first. Now just let that fact sink in for a moment. Sound familiar? Just as China today failed to report the seriousness of its flu outbreak late last year, so too most of the world in 1918 kept the news from spreading and in so doing enabled the spreading of the flu instead. When I watched the balance of those documentaries about the Spanish flu, it, it was like almost like, like watching science fiction, given how the flu spread, the incredible horrifying conditions in which people had to cope with it, and how extremely deadly it became. I mean, a person could experience his first symptoms at 6 p.m. and be dead by morning. 
In addition to the usual symptoms associated with flu, Spanish flu symptoms included blood gushing from the eyes, from the ears, mouth and nose, muscular contractions that were painfully excruciating, people's skin turning blue and black, and on and on. That one of the common denominators underlying the spread of the Spanish flu was the crowded and filthy environment in which everyone was forced to live, along with people taking every action possible to spread the flu. Given the ignorance and lack of information at the time, in retrospect, you know, it almost seemed as if someone had suggested, hey, let's see, what could we possibly do to make sure this flu spreads to as many people as possible? And then followed right through on those suggestions. <laughs> I am not kidding you. Government officials and politicians ignored the warnings of healthcare professionals. Instead of keeping away from each other, people crowded together. There was no proper hygiene as soldiers in the trenches of World War I ate, slept, urinated, and defecated in the same place. Dead bodies and feces would wash into the trenches where they were forced to stay with their feet constantly in a pool of polluted water. And that's just the tip of a very huge how-not-to-fight-a-flu iceberg that was revealed in both of the documentaries. So maybe after understanding that history, we may better understand the concerns our government officials have about COVID-19 today. Coronavirus. Maybe they're overreacting. Maybe they're not. For now, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, given the following considerations. COVID-19 is new. There are no specific vaccines, medicines, or treatments yet available, other than ventilators, which are in short supply. Therefore, many advocate the precautionary principle, which in retrospect is the exact opposite approach of what was done in 1918. Now, as of this recording, the number of known cases of COVID-19 in my own hometown of London, Ontario, is zero. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be many people already carrying the virus in this city. Reported deaths in the entire country of Canada is one right at the moment. Might be more by the time this broadcast airs. Yet our public schools have all been closed for three weeks, from March 14th to April 5th. And for all intents and purposes, our city is in a state of emergency, even though the city hasn't declared one like they did with climate change. You know, it makes me think, you know, be careful you don't cry wolf too often or no one will take you seriously. Another issue is COVID-19 is an unknown relative to other flu strains and viruses we know about, but which can also be deadly. Symptoms of the coronavirus are no different than those associated with anything from the common cold to flus that we already know about. We've been told that over 80% of people who contract the virus will experience symptoms no different from that of a common cold or mild flu, or perhaps have no symptoms at all. Children, apparently, do not suffer from this virus. Now, these statistics, again, are merely a guess at best. We have no other long-term experience against which to measure our expectations. Although our knowledge increases daily, we're a long way from a vaccine or any known effective treatments. Another issue is we're dealing with statistics. Statistics that are misleading making percentages of related deaths seem a bit extreme, ironically at the lower end of the absolute number scale. 
Like, I mean, if you're only aware of a handful of actual confirmed cases, and the death toll is, say, 20, then you've got a pretty high death rate. But if you later discover that there were actually thousands of people who had contracted the virus as against the same reported 20 deaths, that rate drops dramatically, doesn't it? And, of course, there's the percentages illusion. When one person who has an infection suddenly becomes two people, statistically, that's a 100% increase. Wow, imagine that. And you know the media will call that an exponential increase. Yet relative to the size of the population, it becomes insignificant. And I think that's part of the reason that many people have difficulty in accepting the potential seriousness of this situation. And then there's the economic and political consequences of government action, which affect everyone, even if you're never going to be affected by the virus itself. And they can be profound. Interruptions in your daily life, uh, meetings canceled, events canceled. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's quite an inconvenience, to say the least. And of course, at least up to this point, and I'm sure it's not going to stop, contradictory information from informed sources. I mean, like one medical expert I heard interviewed suggested that the reason Canada's infection rate is so low compared to other countries is because Canada's a cold country. And then he predicted an upswing in cases as summer approached. <laughs> Another medical expert I heard interviewed said the upcoming summer heat would cause infections to drop. One thing that everyone seems to agree on is that sunlight does kill the virus. But apparently, from what I've seen, the temperature per se appears not to be a factor. And then we have a media that loves to spread anxiety and panic. Even the daily weather forecasts are dramatized to a point where, say, a prediction of a few centimeters of snow is portrayed as an event to fear. I mean, I can understand that. They want to get their ratings up, and anytime they create anxiety and fear in the listeners, we tune in. And if you stop to think about it, anxiety is largely caused by a feeling of a lack of control. And control freaks suffer from anxiety in the extreme relative to those who don't feel it necessary to be in control of everything. And this is partly why politicians like to pretend they can, say, fight climate change. We can't really control the climate, so our anxiety about that fact can be used against us for political purposes. And when it comes to controlling the COVID-19 virus, even taking the proper preventative measures is no guarantee that you won't get it. So let us now turn our attention to what healthcare experts and politicians are telling us about COVID-19. On this side of our next bumper, a report from 60 Minutes Australia that was aired on March 8th, while on the return side, one of the most blunt statements I've ever heard from a politician about a pending potential crisis, as heard in the statement of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson on March the 12th. One and a half percent uh, of that 100-person cluster uh, has asymptomatic shedding of a live virus. So Professor Gabriel Leon is considered the world's foremost expert on coronavirus. Based in Hong Kong, he led the global fight against SARS. At first, we heard rumours uh, about a new, mysterious, atypical pneumonia um, sort of brewing on the mainland. Was there much fright in those days? Was there? Of course, of course. Um, th it was very scary. 
No end in sight to the SARS crisis. The SARS death toll continues to rise. In November 2002, SARS rampaged through 17 countries, infecting over 8,000 people and killing nearly 800. Experts say that's just a hint of what this latest coronavirus could do. It is certainly more infective. So, um, and, and it's also very difficult to try to control it. And coronavirus, or COVID-19, as the illness is now being called, spreads far more rapidly than SARS. Unchecked, as countries like China and South Korea have discovered, the infection rate becomes exponential. The big unknown now is really how big is the iceberg? So you're guessing there could be many, many more people? I don't know, but I'm suspecting that. Coronavirus has already struck over 80 countries and counting. Professor Leung's prediction for the eventual extent of the pandemic is chilling. From everything you've learnt over the past uh, weeks and months, what is your best estimate of how many people around the world could be affected by this virus? Don't know. Everybody is susceptible. And if you assume that everybody randomly mix with each other, then eventually you will see um, 40, 50, 60% of the population get infected. At current mortality rates, that level of infection would mean between 45 and 60 million deaths worldwide. And that's just in the first wave of the virus, despite the desperate draconian lockdown measures being used in China. Is the second wave worse than the first wave, do you think? Don't know, but we have to prepare for that possibility that there is a second wave. As a person and a scientist, does this virus frighten you? Every time I'm, I'm involved in an epidemic, it frightens me. But I think that a little bit of anxiety will give you that extra bit of motivation to take precautions. There is now an emergency going on, and what we must do is very rigorous infection control. I've just chaired a meeting of the government's emergency committee, including ministers from Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And it's clear that coronavirus, COVID-19, continues and will continue to spread across the world and our country over the next few months. We've done what can be done to contain this disease, and this has brought us valuable time. But it's now a global pandemic, and the number of cases will rise sharply. Indeed, the true number of cases is higher, perhaps much higher than the number of cases we have so far confirmed with tests. And I've got to be clear, we've all got to be clear, this is the worst public health crisis for a generation. Some people compare it to seasonal flu. Alas, that is not right. Owing to the lack of immunity, this 
the disease is more dangerous and it's going to spread further. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. This is now not just an attempt to contain the disease as far as possible, but to delay its spread and thereby minimize the suffering. If we delay the peak even by a few weeks, then our NHS will be in a stronger state as the weather improves and fewer people suffer from normal respiratory diseases, more beds are available and we'll have more time for medical research. We can also act to stretch the peak of the disease over a longer period so that our society is better able to cope. The Chief Medical Officer will set out our lines of defence. We have to deploy these at the right time to maximise their effect. The most important task will be to protect our elderly and most vulnerable people during the peak weeks when there is the maximum risk of exposure to the disease and when the NHS will be under the most pressure. So the most dangerous period is not now, but some weeks away, depending on how fast it spreads. We are considering the question of banning major public events such as sporting fixtures. And the scientific advice, as we, we've said over the last couple of weeks, is that this uh, banning such events will have little effect on the spread. But there is also the issue of the burden that such events can place on public services. So we're discussing these issues with colleagues in all parts of the United Kingdom and we'll have more to say shortly about the timing of further action in that respect. At all stages, we have been guided by the science and we will do the right thing at the right time. We are not, repeat not, closing schools now. The scientific advice is that this could do more harm than good at this time, but of course we're keeping this under review and this again may change as the disease spreads. Schools should only close if they are specifically advised to do so, and that remains our advice. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Just to give you some idea of how quickly things are changing on the COVID-19 front, I have just learned in the middle of recording this broadcast that Ontario Premier Doug Ford has declared a state of emergency in the province of Ontario, that London, Ontario has reported its first case of COVID-19, although there are apparently four or five cases in the area if you take into account Middlesex County. Ontario has its first death reported. British Columbia now has four deaths reported, bringing Canada's total to five. And there's that exponential increase again that we mentioned earlier. And while these stats may seem trivial relative to Canada's total population, just short of 40 million, consider the gravity of Boris Johnson's statement. More families will lose loved ones before their time. That was an incredibly powerful statement to make. It established the perceived reality of the situation on the part of the Prime Minister and his government. It established credibility of the Speaker because, let's face it, we all know that what he said is very probable. 
It established confidence in the announced plan, which, right or wrong, was announced with a clear sense of logic and reasoning that went behind that plan. And of course, it established a sense of true concern and empathy by the Prime Minister with those who would tragically lose their loved ones before their time. At the root of the government's strategy, it is clear that the major concern being expressed by Johnson has to do with Britain's health care system, the NHS, and that's the same concern expressed by every other nation and was the same concern we heard expressed even by those involved in previous pandemics like the Spanish flu. And speaking to that concern, here's a further comment I received from my friend working in an Ontario hospital's emergency department, and I quote, I wanted to mention that I think a major aspect of the story is the baseline capacity of the healthcare system. We run on very thin margins, and there is structurally inherent rigidity to accommodate the ebb and flow that naturally occurs with pathogens that routinely flow through our population. It is extremely resource-intensive to care for our elderly with complex illnesses, never mind the additional management of acute respiratory failure with mechanical ventilation. The law of diminishing returns is inescapable. You get an influx of younger people that now need the beds and resources, maybe it's time to let go of the elderly who show much less chance of survival. Frankly, I don't get what the big deal is and why this seems so monstrous to people. I remember a young person died in my hospital because our ICU bed was taken up by a chronic patient who was living in our ICU for years. He had a single registered nurse look after him every day. He was a hotbed of pathogens, had no quality of life. If coronavirus wiped him out and made space for a genuinely critical patient, I would not be sad. We spent so many resources resuscitating him. Doctors asked his wife if we could just let him go the next time he crashed, and she steadfastly refused. She was still getting his pension. Multi-multi-million dollars helping this man stay alive in ICU so his wife could collect his pension. Meanwhile, there are young people today who die in the emergency room unable to get a bed because they are basically vegetables being kept alive on billions in health care resources to feed the emotional, financial, or other needs of family members. I am so frustrated by all of this, and trust me, I am not an exterminationist, end quote. Now bear in mind that this described circumstance faced by Canada's health care system is one that exists now within a health care system based on socialism, single payer. And that's before any concerns with COVID-19 are taken into account. Such is the cost of rationing health care, the inevitable result of all socialized health care systems. So as we can see, most of the precautionary actions taken by governments around the world have more to do with their health care systems than with the virus itself. Because that's what flattening the curve, quote-unquote, is really all about. This from the National Post on March 15th, headline, Why Draconian Measures May Not Work. And this is by Drs. Neil Rao and Susan Richardson. And I quote, Quarantine in its various forms is being deployed as an ever-expanding strategy from self-isolation to broad travel restrictions and school closures. This sledgehammer approach will affect mainly able-bodied workers, children, and students, for whom a COVID-19 infection will be nothing more than a cold. It will put a huge segment of the workplace out of commission, including healthcare workers, at a time when we need them most. 
Having failed to stop the virus completely, the World Health Organization has revised the containment strategy to a novel one, to flatten the outbreak curve. This new strategy is being used to invoke severe restrictions to movement and liberty at an early phase of the pandemic in North America, although the effectiveness of this approach is unproven. Even China's valiant efforts with unprecedented mass quarantine were only partly successful and required a huge sacrifice of individual liberties. The United Kingdom is taking a more nuanced approach to containment, waiting to consider school closures and self-isolation of the elderly and other at-risk people until the epidemic is on the upswing. The government there recognizes that the goal of complete containment is not possible and that containment fatigue will result in failure to adhere to policies if those measures are instituted too early and applied too broadly. The World Health Organization should abandon the containment ideal and urge countries to focus on how to best identify, prevent, and treat the infection in the population that is most at risk, in addition to protecting staff and patients in hospitals and the broader healthcare community. The head of the UN Food Program now warns of absolute devastation as the COVID-19 effect ripples through Africa and the Middle East. Is this a direct consequence of the disease or from the economic consequence of the World Health Organization's determination to contain it, end quote. And that's a good question, and one that will be continuously asked throughout this pandemic crisis. So let's look forward to and plan for a more positive future outlook regarding flu pandemics, which brings us back to the true source of the problem, something that seems far removed from most people's current consciousness. In a word, China. To get a deeper understanding of how and why China's so-called wet markets that exist actually both in China and throughout Southeast Asia, in which wild animals are sold, tortured, and slaughtered, are so central to the whole virus and flu issue, let's listen in to the following, again taken from 60 Minutes Australia. I'm with Stephen Galster, an environmental and human rights investigator based in Thailand. About this, we've got the, the lenses in the backpack. Right. We're getting ready for an undercover operation using secret cameras. So this should work quite well for us. This just all tucks away in here. Our target, an illegal wildlife market in Bangkok. <coughs> Places like this and so-called wet markets where wild animals are sold for food are where coronavirus first jumped from animals to humans. So in viral terms, these things are really living petri dishes, aren't they? Yeah, there's sleeping time bombs across the region right now. Stopping the zoonotic jump at source is, of course, critical. Does the virus transmit into humans through people eating these animals or just handling them? Probably the highest risk during the handling process, where you have animals under stress, therefore their immune system is down, and then through the handling process, including slaughter, that's when the highest risk of jumping from animal to humans would have occurred. Experts aren't certain, but the suspicion is that in Wuhan, coronavirus crossed to humans from the most trafficked wild animal in the world, the pangolin. Pangolins have been high on the menu for a while. Whatever it was, it was an animal. It jumped from an animal to a person. It's a wild animal that's been taken out of its natural environment, consumed in some way, come into contact with people in an unnatural way. That's the lesson here. Do you find it mystifying that you can have a, 
a grandparent dying in an aged care home in Sydney from an animal that was sold in a market in China? Yeah, because we've been working on this for years. We've been trying to warn people that, you know, this is global. We're walking into the heart of Bangkok's are. immense Chattachuk market to see how seriously Thailand's authorities are taking the threat that coronavirus has so dramatically exposed. Here in hot, squalid and cramped conditions, wild animals smuggled in from all over the world. I think of this place as a tortured chamber and a filthy laboratory all mixed into one. From AIDS to SARS, and now the pandemic affecting over 80 countries worldwide. Most new diseases infecting mankind are caused by a virus that began in a wild animal and leapt to humans in settings just like this. As part of its desperate efforts to contain coronavirus, China closed over 20,000 wet markets. But wildlife markets like this are still operating with impunity across Asia, run by organized crime syndicates. These syndicates, we know who they are, and they're still out there, and they're not gonna close down business today because China you know, close down Wuhan. These are like drug dealers, you know? You make it difficult to sell drugs in one neighborhood, they're gonna to move to another. Huddled in their cages and glass boxes are everything from Australian cockatoos even blue-tongued lizards, to African meerkats, European ferrets, rare tortoises and snakes. These animals are never together in the wild and so are vulnerable to viruses carried by each other. In these terrible conditions, those viruses can pass to the humans who handle them. The next global pandemic could easily begin in one of these cages. Then, deep within the market, a single shop that should rightly terrify a world reeling from coronavirus. An African serval cat, a fennec fox from the Sahara, and marmosets from South America. This is just incredible. You know, African cats, snakes. You've got monkeys, primates, in the same confined space. Has no one told these people that, that this is where the other viruses came from? Well, we have, and we've told them this is Wuhan in the making, number two, and so we're asking them to shut it down because it's a prescription for disaster. All within this small, hot room, ready to infect somebody. That, that is amazing, I've seen it all now. Yeah. So if you want to stop the next pandemic, it's going to have to be truly a global attempt to shut these markets down. Yeah, I mean, look, coronavirus is spreading all over the world. So that should tell us we need to not just shut down the markets in China. You need to shut them down in Thailand, Indonesia, Laos, Cambodia, Burma, and perhaps other countries as well. Otherwise, it's going to expand or recur. If our response to the coronavirus catastrophe is global, and it has to be, then surely our response to the deadly threat posed at the very source of these viruses must be equally global. Well, given our current state of affairs, 
we're still a long way from having that conversation. Now, having now given due consideration to mountains of data, history, and other information regarding influenzas, here are a few of the reasons, I think, to take this COVID-19 epidemic seriously. Number one, it is clearly among the population and appears to be highly contagious. Secondly, as we learn from history and from previous experience with influenza, flus come in waves, and subsequent waves can be deadlier than the earlier ones. Don't let what you see today be the sole determinant of what action we take now or in the future. Thirdly, Donald Trump, and I couldn't help but notice that every time Trump discussed COVID-19, whatever it was being called at the time, his demeanor was relatively more serious than when dealing with other issues. And I'm sure he's had no desire to declare a national emergency, nor to see interest rates drop to near zero, nor to have to see the government spend more money than it's already spending. And number four, knowledge of previous pandemics and the threat of social and political disruption. It's not just how many or who actually gets the flu or who dies from it. It's about the profound secondary effects and unintended consequences of certain actions taken to tackle the problem, which could get much worse if not dealt with at all. And fifthly, I think that most of what government can do is really superficial and symbolic. That what government can do and does best is spend taxpayer dollars and use the force of law to restrict and prohibit. And while this can possibly violate our fundamental freedoms, keep in mind that this is a necessary function when it comes to the protection of life, liberty, and property. But it doesn't give an authority license to do whatever it wants to the detriment of life, liberty, and property. So I'm not saying it's an easy call to make. To address our show's opening concern about the lust for public control, I got this feedback from listener Trevor D., who wrote, and I quote, 1855, the third plague pandemic. Starting in China and moving to India and Hong Kong, the bubonic plague claimed 15 million victims. Initially spread by fleas during a mining boom in Yunnan, the plague is considered a factor in the Parthe Rebellion and the Taiping Rebellion. India faced the most substantial casualties and, as Trevor emphasizes, the epidemic was used as an excuse for repressive policies that sparked some revolt against the British. The pandemic was considered active until 1960, when cases dropped below a couple hundred. And then Trevor later added, the only thing making me sick is all this hysteria. (laughs) Well, I hear you, Trevor. And I got this one from Paul Lambert who lives in Germany, has been a guest on our show, and is our sponsor, enabling us to be heard on shortwave radio around the world. Quote, Hello, Bob. I have just dug out my old copy of London Metro Bulletin from September 1983 about preparations for nuclear war. The information is coming in handy in dealing now with the Wuhan flu. I think Germany's about to be shut down under quarantine, and I need to stock up on supplies while I can. Wish me luck. End quote. Well, good luck, Paul. <laughs> and incidentally, the Metro Bulletin was a newspaper that I edited and which was published by Mark Emery back in the early 80s. Now, if you were paying close attention, you might have noticed some discrepancies in the stats cited regarding deaths attributed to the Spanish flu between the two documentaries we heard earlier in the show. And I think there's a bit of a lesson there. Even today, the Spanish flu and similar events continue to be studied and documented. 
This in part speaks to the difficulty of determining accurate numbers even long after a particular disease has passed, let alone trying to get accurate stats about a disease still manifesting itself. Similarly, there are differing stories of how a particular pandemic originally got started, again, even long after it has been over. So statistics are an educated guess at best, and it's important not to attach too much significance to their literal accuracy. Accurate counts are simply not possible. It's the bigger and broader perspective that should be considered. And above all, do not allow yourself to be consumed by anxiety and panic because you're seeing the numbers increase daily, because they undoubtedly will. Now, I have to admit, this is very speculative on my part, but I've come to the nagging conclusion that the COVID virus may have already been globally spread long before we even became aware of the first deaths in Wuhan, China. Does it really, quote-unquote, spread rapidly? Or has it already been hiding within the population? Remember that the discovery of a particular virus depends upon identifying it. It's the law of identity. And the perceived rapid spread may only coincide with a more rapid testing and identification period. You know, it's another one of those statistical illusionary patterns. And from everything I've reviewed thus far, the origin of the COVID-19 virus is now estimated to have been in early November 2019, but was not identified until January of this year. And a similar pattern of discovery accompanied the SARS virus, as we heard on a previous audio bite. And these seem to support my hypotheses. If true, whether this observation on my part proves to be good news or bad news, I suppose depends on how you interpret it. So today we've only scratched the surface of the whole COVID-19 global phenomenon, and there's no way of knowing how things might stand tomorrow or a week from now. And speaking of global, let's consider that COVID-19, since it doesn't quote-unquote recognize borders, as we've been reminded so many times, could be adopted as a perfect symbol to represent globalists, who also apparently don't recognize borders. Uh, sorry, I couldn't resist making that comparison. But I'll leave it to you to play with that analogy for a while. And I'll also leave it to you to decide for yourself whether government actions regarding COVID-19 are an overreaction, an underreaction, or are just right. And while you're considering those options today, see if you feel the same way about them seven days from now, as we invite you to return to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Stop the Landstrom! Are you there, Doctor? Oh, brutal. There is no need for alarm, sir. If there were any dangerous viral strains in the atmosphere, the scan would have picked them up by now. <laughs> Never done that before. <laughs> Cheap, damn, stupid Martian power packs. <laughs>
still lost the news. Well, if I could just beg your indulgences for a few seconds more, sir. The old 345 takes a little time to warm up. Still, it outperforms the 346 in 8 out of 9 bench tests. A small wonder, then, that it secured size scan of the year best budget model three years running. <laughs> now, here are the results. Yep. And we're going to... Live. <laughs> we're a real Mickey Mouse operation, aren't we? Mickey Mouse? We ain't even Betty Boo. 